And speaking of missionaries, we have some of our very own here today, and we are blessed to have Daniel, Kathleen, and Ava Harrison with us. Uh, They're going to be spending a little bit of time in the States, and most of you guys know this, is that um, Joe, um, Joe Hale, is the father of Kathleen, and so um, I'm sure it's good to be in town and seeing Dad. So, um, guys, if y'all will, we all come on up and share a little bit about what's going on in Austria. Good morning, church. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Uh, just before the church started, uh, the service started. Um, I reminded Kathleen that we had to get home because the Tour de France is uh, is the final day of the Tour de France. She said, you better hurry up then. So I'm probably not going to use the 45 minutes that's allotted to me. Um, So I'll I'll try and keep it. It's gone up, hasn't it, from 23 minutes in the first service. Um, My name is Daniel. Kathleen is sitting over there. She said, I want to come up with you and just sit on the... I said, why not sit at my feet on the stage? Uh, but um, she's going to kill me for that afterwards. Um, Ava, our daughter, 12-year-old, is outside in, in, in junior church. And, uh, but we're so glad to be here. Um, let me just uh, explain to you just the background. Um, we are uh, serving a church in Austria, in the Tyrol. Um, my parents founded this church in the 1970s, 1980s, where I grew up for 10 years. And about 10 years ago, um, or 11 years ago, we received the call um, to minister over there. So that's what we've been doing for the last um, 10, um, 10 years over there. Um, yeah, I mentioned the Tour de France. Let me just, may I, if I can give you an analogy. Uh, before I came over to, to the States for the holiday, uh, for the vacation as we're on, and I decided I'd go for, out for a ride. So I jumped on my, my bike, my road bike. Anyone in here into road bikes? Um, a couple, couple of people I see, people nodding. I got on my bike, and I was going to do about an hour workout on my bike. So I headed down the valley, and I had a tailwind, and it felt good. Um, but I got about a, about a mile down the road, and I come to a fork, a crossing of the road, and then... Two minutes before the crossing, I decided that I would turn left. So instead of heading down the valley with the wind behind me, I turned left because I decided I would be going up the mountain. So after about a mile, I started to climb um, the mountain on my bike. And if you know anything about gradients, it's an average of 11%, and it kind of maxes at 14 and uh, and I was up a mile into the climb, and I thought to myself, what am I doing? Why am I climbing this mountain? Because I was panting, my pulse had gone up to actually 181 beats per minute, um, and I was suffering, and it was hot outside, and the sun was still beating down, although it was six o'clock in the evening. And I thought, what on earth? am I doing up here? Why am I not in the valley with the tailwind behind me enjoying myself? I, at least I had a breeze down there, but I've nothing up there. And uh, what came to my mind is how God sometimes takes us on paths that we're not familiar with and paths that might seem unpleasant to us or scary to us or challenging to us. Why am I going up this hill? when it's so nice in the valley. And uh, I related this back to something that happened in our ministry in 2014. At that time, small church, 20 people, meeting in a, a rented hall, enjoying life, enjoying the wind behind us, tailwind, things were going good, things were going well. And God at that time told us as a leadership team, change is coming, and I need you to change. I need you, instead of to go straight ahead as a church, I needed you to turn off to the left. And what he was saying to us at that time is, I don't no longer want you as a church to be meeting in your hall. You need to go back and meet, start meeting in your homes. 
Now, you might question that. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would God be leading us this way? And for us, it was a paradigm shift that had to happen in our congregation because the mindset was, we got the church, we got the hall, we'll send out flyers, we'll invite people to come in to church, they'll come, they'll find Christ, we'll grow, everything's happy, and we'll have a tailwind behind us. And God was changing the mindset of us all to say, it's not about inviting people into the church. It's about you, the congregation, going out. It's not about getting people here so that they can hear a good sermon and the professionals, the pastors can get them saved, but it's about you reaching them, you going out, speaking to your neighbors, to your friends, to your work colleagues, to strangers in the street, people you meet at the bank or wherever. You go out and present the gospel to them. And one lady asked me in the congregation, she said, well, how am I going to do this? You know, where, where are we going to bring people for them to get saved? And I said, wouldn't it be nice if they got saved sitting around your table, around a coffee, having a meal at home? Isn't that the place where they should meet God? Wouldn't that be delightful for you? And so there was a time where we actually met in our homes. And since then, we've been back. Um, a couple of years later was the time in 2018 where we started then to meet back regularly in the hall. And even then, yes, the paradigm shift had taken place in people's minds, but things were going well then. Um, we had, uh, our congregation was growing. We had a Thursday evening um, outreach, uh, a healing meeting, an evangelistic meeting, and, and, and the, we had 12, 13, 14 unbelievers come in to uh, and join with us, and they had church. They didn't know they were having church, but they had church with us, and they had the gospel, and their lives were being changed. And then all of a sudden, 2019, 2020, the pandemic hits. And during the 18 months period, um, we've, been, we've had 15 months of lockdown. And some hard lockdowns where we're not allowed to go out of our house except for to go to the grocery stores. Other times, a little bit of a, a relaxed lockdown, but still lockdown where we as a church couldn't meet together. And during this time also beforehand, we were also meeting individually and with groups. We had people around our homes. We had unbelievers from, from, from Ava's dance groups. They were coming and we had 30 people in our homes for, you know, for a, a chili cook-off. We'd meet for Thanksgiving. We'd meet for Christmas. We'd meet all the time. And, and you know, things were going well. Wind behind us, and then the pandemic hits. And we think, yes, what, what Satan means for evil, though, God can, take, can turn around for good. Because what God knew in 2014, he knew that he was preparing us for, for the pandemic. He knew the pandemic would come, and we would be isolated. And... During the pandemic, what has taken place? More salvations and more people's lives have been changed during this time than prior. We've had people in our congregation, unbeknownst to us to begin with, they said, oh, let's meet over Zoom every day. And they met every day over Zoom and they broke bread together and they prayed together and they had a short Bible study together. And they, over Zoom, started to invite people, a believer, a non-believer, someone that they'd be witnessing to, so our church was actually proclaiming the gospel during the pandemic over Zoom. Independent of, of us leaders. See, it's not about us professionals, us leaders doing it. It's about the congregation. It's about the body of Christ being the body of Christ. And they had learned to reach out to other people. They'd learned to, to proclaim the gospel to other people in or out of the pandemic. So our church has been growing, and we've been blessed. And you know when you, you're on your bike and you're halfway up, it feels like it's, it's hard work. But when you reach the top, the summit, and for me it was about um, 2,100 feet, it's a good feeling to be up there. It's a good feeling to then start to roll downhill. And it was a good feeling. And, and what God was also saying to me in this kind of parallel is, 
had I had it continued in the valley, at some point I would have had to have turned round. And that wind in my sails would have been wind in my face. And if any one of you rides a bike, it's the worst thing that could happen um, is to have a headwind and feel like you're not getting anywhere. So what we have learned also through this experience is, is obedience. Be obedient to Christ even though you may suffer, even though it might be hard, even though it might be an uphill struggle. Be obedient to Christ. Follow what he is telling you to do. Otherwise, you will get that headwind and not be on the mountain going downhill. Now, the Tour de France... Jeff's ready to get up. Tour de France is ending today. You know that? Final day there in Paris. And at one o'clock, I'll be at home and I'll be sitting there. But one thing that really touched me with the Tour de France is Mark Cavendish. Anyone know of Mark Cavendish? The most famous sprinter there's, that there's been. And he has now equaled Eddie Merckx's record of 34 tour stage wins. And so I'm, I, want to get, I want to get back to my TV and I'm going to switch it on and I'm going to hope that he wins another one. But you know, Mark Cavendish shouldn't have been at the tour at all. After five years of absence from the tour because of illness, sickness, depression, because of the team he was in, he shouldn't have actually been racing even this year. But the team's main sprinter became ill had an injury, and Mark Cavendish was asked, do you want to race? And he kind of agreed and said, yeah, I'm ready. And as he, as he won the fourth stage, and then subsequent stages, I can remember one rider came by and said, Mark, you're in, the, you're in the form of your life. He said, no, I'm in the team of my life. And later, post-race interview, he, he sat there and said, I'm humbled. He said, because I got Philippe, the world champion, racing for me. I've got Askreen, uh, the Norwegian champion, who's the champion of, of the Tour of Flanders, riding for me. He said, I've got my weeks. And they're lying on the road. And all I have to do is sprint that 150 meters. Because they get me to that point where the sprint starts. And I just... Do my bit, I sprint. And the first thing that came to my mind when I heard that is how God is so good. That God has laid it down for us. He totally laid out his life for us and made it possible for us to exist, to walk, to be. And it's like God saying, do that 150 meters. Go on. There's, there's, finish the race. Walk it out. Do it. And the second thing that came to my mind was also is that we are in a team. We're not doing the half. We're just simply doing the 150 meters because we've got a team of supporters behind us who make this possible, who make victories possible, who make success possible in the kingdom. We have people like yourselves who support us in prayer, support us financially, support us in other ways that you don't even know how you support us. And you actually make it happen. We're in the best team of our life, as Mark Cavendish uh, said. But you know what? With Mark Cavendish, it's not just getting him over the line where he raises his hands up in victory. Um, a couple of stages ago, he was the last over the line. The mountain stage, sprinters don't like mountains. And there's a picture of him surrounded by three or four of his teammates. And he wrote, he said, I love this picture. He said, there's a got my teammates suffering with me, so I suffer less. And that's what it feels like having a body of believers behind us. Because sometimes... We throw our arms up in victory. And other times we feel like we're just grinding up the mountain. And so I and Kathleen, Ava, we want to thank you for standing behind us, for supporting us. And I'm sure there's many things that I've not said that I should have said. But I just wanted to take this opportunity uh, to thank you all. And thank you, Pastor Jeff, for 
for being, for letting me to share. We uh, want to bless them in prayer right now. And, and some of you know Daniel Kathleen. If, if you don't, I'd encourage you while they're here for a, for a couple of weeks this summer, get to know them, encourage them, pray for them. Um, they're, they're part of Trinity extended into Europe to represent the gospel there and to be the light of Christ there. So would you stand with me and just by your standing, um, pray with me uh, for Daniel and Kathleen. <clears throat> Lord, together in prayer, we are just wrapping our arms around this precious family, and we are thanking you for them. We're, Lord, we are blessing them. Lord, we're asking that you would continue your work through them. Thank you for their faithfulness. These 10, 11 years, they have faithfully served you in this church and in this ministry. And Lord, I pray that you would continue that work, give them courage on those hard days, uh, give them joy on those, um, those days of victory. And Lord, when the the grind gets tough up the mountain, Lord, give them the, the support, the strength of your spirit to continue pressing on. And Lord, I thank you that we at Trinity here in Marble Hill can have a part of this ministry all the way into the country of Austria. And Lord, we recognize that there are, there's great darkness there in other parts of Europe where um, it's from, from the history of the enemy's work and since squelching the gospel message, Lord, that we ask that the, for the light to shine through and for the gospel to, to flourish. And so we pray for that, for this church, for this family, and for this ministry. And I pray that while they're home, you would refresh them and, and encourage them, build them back up so they go back ready uh, to serve well. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for all that you do in us and through us as a church, as your believers, as uh, your faithful witnesses. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Acts, the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is the word of God. Man, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Allison and team, for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, Trinity Church. So good to see you here this morning. Thanks for being part of our worship service. And uh, I'm Pastor Jeff Gangle. Glad to welcome you here. Those of you that are watching online, too, thank you for taking time out of your schedule and gathering around and participating from a distance with us today. Um, it's a uh, it's a privilege. We just sometimes we take this for granted that we get to be the church and, and live this out and fellowship and worship and sing together. So uh, we don't want to take that for granted this morning. So would you bow with me just one more time? Let's pray as we go into God's Word. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your Word that you've, you've held for us, kept for us, retained for us so that we would still, these many years later after your coming to earth, we would have this record of your truth and know what you've said to us and know what you're giving to us and know what you want us to know. To know. And Lord, I thank you that we can come together today and lift up our prayer requests. And I'm just praying this morning for uh, Frances Harris. She, uh, as she has said, a little bit of setback this weekend. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen her heart as she recovers from this open heart surgery. I pray that you would just uh, restore her get her out of that ICU unit and encourage her family as they are, uh, as they are, I'm sure, concerned for her, anxious for her health. 
And so we lift her up as our sister in Christ. And this morning, too, we do pray, as we were encouraged earlier in the service for Bert and Kim, thank you for their willingness to go down and encourage our missionaries down in Honduras and that work there. And I thank you that they're just connecting and engaging right away with those, those precious girls in that home. And I, I pray for a great week for them and that they'll be a help and encouragement to Michael and Karen. And Lord, as we come to your word, I pray, as I always do, that you would watch my words, help me to accurately communicate what you once said for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would be responsive to your word and that it would be the power of your word and your spirit at work in us to help us uh, be conformed to your image today. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all this. Amen. Well, I need to start this message with something a little different by actually taking out my hearing aid on this one side and giving it to my wife, who's going to put a new battery in that. It's fun. Timing is everything. Five seconds before I'm to come up, this, my hearing aid beeps at me and, and goes dead. So she's going to fix that. So I'd rather be able to hear what's going on and not just hear half of it. I can hear everybody over here. I can't hear anything over here. So um, if you saw our video yesterday, then you kind of have a sense already of what uh, the illustration is I want to begin with this morning. It, we had our uh, two little grandsons on the video, and we were out walking in the neighborhood, and we found some seeds, and we were talking about how the seeds uh, are a great picture of what God does with His Word. And so I brought a couple pictures as well today. I couldn't find these because they're already, they're already gone from springtime, but you know these little uh, kind of cottony things that just... It's amazing how God made this, right? That the seed floats on the wind. It's made to float so that when the wind comes, it takes those seeds other places and plants that tree. That's how these, these trees propagate. And the, my favorite, actually, is the next one, these helicopter things. I mean, who but God could be creative enough to create a seed that's its own helicopter that can fly to its destination wherever it's going to plant, right? And then pine cones, that's another one we talked about yesterday, a pine cone that protects its seeds on the inside, and it takes heat. In fact, actually, fire is the thing that actually will often pop those seeds out so that after the destruction of a fire, new seeds are planted so pines can grow back up behind them. Aha. Technology. Love it, right? Let's see if this actually works. You'll hear, hear a little squeal. Oh, there we go. Okay. Now we're on. Oh, now I can actually hear what I'm saying. Did what I said already make any sense at all yet? Okay, good. So <clears throat> here's, the, here's the point. The, when the gospel, like a seed, there are winds of change and there are fires of persecution that take the seed of the Word and spread it. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today. If you were listening as Bruce read in, in Acts 8, you already heard that. But this is part of our series. If you're just joining us now online or here in person, we're in a series in the book of Acts. We've titled this To the Ends of the Earth, and it's taken right from Jesus' words to His disciples right before His ascension. Acts 1.8, here it is on the screen. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so today we're going to see this beginning to happen, exactly what Jesus said the spread of the gospel, but it comes with heartache and it comes with pain. We're going to see that too. So I encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, do that, or on your phone, whatever device you have, there are some Bibles under the chairs in different places around the room. If that helps, we'll put some of the verses on the screen as well. But I want you to follow along in Acts chapter 8. Last week we were in chapter 7, we learned from Stephen's dying words as he is, becomes the first martyr for the faith. And he is... In that, in that chapter and in those last words, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus, and at the same time, he's forgiving these people that are stoning him to death. And someone else is there watching. And so we begin, we're introduced to somebody else, Luke, who writes this book, introduces to somebody else, it's Saul of Tarsus, who is standing by as these stones are pummeling Stephen. And then Acts 8.1, which is actually kind of part of the end of 7, but it also launches us into Acts chapter 8, he says, and Saul approved of their killing him. Not only did he approve, Saul became the human force behind this persecution of the church now. I mean, it just breaks out. Everything becomes unhinged here. 
This vicious effort to eliminate these Christ followers, this new church movement. Here's the rest of verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So if you were here and you remember back in our series in chapters 4 and 5, it was the apostles who were getting the bulk of the persecution. You know, they were dragged in, they were arrested, they were put in prison, they were flogged. But now the, the persecution's focus seems to turn onto these Hellenistic, remember we talked about this last week, they're these Greek-speaking Jews. So they had been living in other places, they come back to Judea, but they're kind of looked on as second-class citizens, and so they were the same as Stephen, and so now they're being persecuted for their faith, and they're running for their lives. The next verse tells us, in fact, Saul began to destroy the church. It's an interesting word. That word for destroy is also used in Psalm 80, verse 13, of, of wild boars ravaging a vineyard. So that's the picture here. That's the image, is that Saul is out ravaging, tearing apart the church in every way that he can. In fact, if you look at Paul's testimony about this time in his life, later on in the book of Acts, he looks back at this and he says, he says, not only did he arrest these Christians, he was having them beaten. This was severe persecution. But God turns this horror into something good. And here's verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, here's where our illustration of the seed comes in. Because this word right here for scattered is the same word used for the sowing of seed. So this is what they would do, you know, take these bags of seed, they would grab it, and they would cast it out, and that scattering of the seed is how that would, that the crops would get planted. And this is the same word used to describe the church being scattered now on these winds of persecution. And that leads to our first principle for today, the gospel spreads through hardship. Sometimes the gospel spreads and spreads most through hardship which this truth is both painful and beautiful. So I want you to see both sides of this this morning. So here's the painful part, is that it takes the hard things in life to get us moving to obey God's will. Remember, the, this, the disciples clearly heard this when Jesus said it to them, that Acts 1.8 that we read just a moment ago, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. But that hadn't happened yet. They stayed right in Jerusalem until the persecution came, and it was the persecution that moved them to begin to obey what God had told them to do. Why is it that that is true for us often too, right? Why is it that it takes difficulty, crisis, hardship to move us, to remind us, and to get our attention to finally obey God? Why do things have to get desperate before I pray? Why does a relationship have to fall apart before we finally reach out and ask somebody for godly counsel to help us out? Why is it that so often takes a funeral for people to actually begin to think about the life and death issues and decisions? But, but that's just kind of the way we are. It's the way we're wired. I remember as a, maybe you remember this too, as a parent or as a kid, it's what, it's what I call the countdown to obedience. Right? When, when you as a parent, or you, you say to your kids, all right, I'm going to count to five, and by the time I get to five, you better have this, just be started cleaning up this room. All right, one, two. When does the kid start to move? At about four, four and a half, four and three quarters, right? To the very last minute. The whole point of the countdown, for the kids at least, is I know where the end is, and I'm going to wait till the very end. And unfortunately, that kind of childish mindset often affects us even as adults in our relationship with God. It's like we just kind of resist and resist and resist until we're paying the price, until the difficulty comes, until it's the last minute. It's, okay, I'll obey. Okay, I'll do what God wants me to do. And so we should be grateful for what I also call the grace of hardship. The grace of hardship means that when we... God sends that difficulty often to move us to obey because when we obey, that's when we're actually going to be, be purposeful, when we're actually going to do what God wants us to do. Did you notice in verse 4, it was the Christians who were running for their lives. 
who were doing the preaching. The ones who were in the greatest crisis were the ones who were being the most obedient. It, this is not, this focus in chapter 8 is not on the apostles. The focus is not on them that's being sent as missionaries. <laughs> they were running for their lives. This is not the priests or the leaders. These are the people, these Christians, who were facing persecution, who were afraid for their lives. They were the ones who carried with them the message of the gospel. They were being the most obedient in the middle of their hardship, in the middle of the crisis. They talked about Jesus. So that's the beautiful part of this. The hard part is that it takes that. The beautiful part is that God uses that. In the moments of greatest difficulty and our greatest pain, that's where we may have our greatest voice for the gospel. There's so many examples, and you probably have this in your own life, but for me, as those of you that know Beth and I, you, you've heard me share this before about 2013 and Beth's cancer journey year. Clearly, in that the hardest time of Beth's life, God gave her the greatest voice for the gospel because there were hundreds of people who were following her carrying bridge posts during that year, mostly following to hear how she was doing physically. But what came out in her posts was what God was doing in her spiritually. I want to just read you. I just pulled one post. We, we kept all these from that year just as our own reminder of that spiritual journey. This is from August 17th, 2013. On that day, or that week, I guess it was, Beth had a, a bronchoscopy. They were checking a spot on her lung, concerned that perhaps the cancer had spread. Here's what she, here's what she wrote about that. This is the day of surgery. Lots of things happen. I'll try to reconstruct some of it, but honestly, I'm loath to remember certain portions of that day because it produces mixed emotions. Nonetheless, I am aware that my adult children are still learning from me, and so as I process through these experiences and emotions, I'm laying down stepping stones for the faith of my children. Here goes. She describes the day, almost like in third person. Tuesday morning, she woke up after a restful night of sleep. She wasn't apprehensive about the procedure. Spiritually, the, ba the, board, the band members on her worldwide prayer team were active. Physically, she had fully hydrated, knowing the difficulty of the, that her veins were. Emotionally, Jeff was there beside her. Mentally, she knew this was the day that had to be done. And so once again, she walked out the front door and into the car in obedience. Now, I want to read you the last part of that post as she's sharing this this is a couple days later. We get the results. No cancer. Here's how she responds. Tomorrow, Jeff is preaching from Philippians 2 on transcendent joy. Would it be the same sermon if the bronchoscopy results were different? Yes. Always yes. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His work in our lives is consistent just as He is. Consistent. Always. We have known since July 5 that the spot on my lung had grown. It had been a difficult month. Every breath had been a, a step in, into obedience, a faith walk, waiting and trusting and loving powerful, our powerful Father, doing the next thing in obedience. And that will be true of the next thing, whatever and whenever that is. Hundreds of people read that testimony. Because of the pain she was going through, the difficulty. The difficulty gave her the voice for the gospel. And this is so often true in our lives. When God takes you through something hard, that may be the time where your faith grows the most and where it shines the most and where it is most visible to people around you who don't yet have faith. It's the beautiful part of this, and it was certainly true. Hardship is what carried the gospel to Judea and to Samaria. So where was that? We have a map up on the screen to show you a little bit. Judea makes sense. That's the area of the province around Jerusalem. So if they're leaving Jerusalem, they're going to end up in Judea somewhere. But some of them went further north to the next province, north in Samaria. And you might think, well, that sounds natural, but it wasn't natural at all. If you know anything about your biblical history this time, <laughs> the Jews did not go to Samaria. If you remember in Jesus' time, 
the disciples were shocked that Jesus would go through Samaria, that He stopped there, that He had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. John, in chapter 4, verse 9, tells us that the Jews did not have any connection with the Samaritans. Why is that? Well, there's a little, just a brief history lesson here to explain this. Why was there this difficulty between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, the northern kingdom of Israel, hundreds of years before, had been taken captive by Assyria, came in and destroyed Israel, took, took a bunch of the people out of the land and put them in other nations that they had conquered, exported them. Then they imported people from other nations that they had conquered, Assyria had conquered, and planted them, brought them into Israel, what had been the northern kingdom, so that they would weaken them as a nation. They destroy their national identity, and that's what happened. Those, that mixed breed of people became the Samaritans. So they were part Jewish and part who knows what else. So this was a racial, national crisis and, and, and prejudice was going on here. But it was also religious because the Samaritans, sometime before, had set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim rather than going to Jerusalem. So the Jews, the pure Jews, looked at them as religious heretics with all that history. The Jews did not have association with Samaritans. But these Jews, these ones, these new Christians who were running for their lives, these Greek-speaking Jews, they were already second-class citizens. They were already running for their lives. They were already outcasts. And so it was natural for them to go to the outcasts in Samaria. And that's where God takes them. And that's where the gospel goes. And that's our next point. The gospel reaches the outcasts. The gospel goes to those who need it most. Here we're introduced to another key character, Philip. Because not only is he a Hellenistic Jew, he's one that's been run out of Jerusalem. He was one of the deacons. Remember, this is not Philip the apostle of Jesus. This is Philip the deacon that in, we're introduced to in Acts chapter 6. And because of the persecution, these... The Jews are spreading out. They, Philip ends up in this town in Samaria, and God begins to give him this extraordinary, miraculous ability to heal the lame, to cast out demons, all this that you heard read just a moment ago. And the Samaritans respond. This, they see this as, this, these miracles as an affirmation of the gospel, and so they respond with joy and acceptance, similar to the reception Jesus received when he went to Samaria. And here's God's plan in action, right? The gospel message of acceptance and freedom came to these people who had experienced rejection and oppression. That's why it brought them such joy. Philip had a message for these outcasts. He was right where God wanted him to be. Think about this. Really, God could have taken him anywhere, right? As he took others, Philip could have landed anywhere, but God took him to Samaria, we're going to find out later next week in the last part of chapter 8 that God moves Philip around a lot of other places, but for now, He wants him in Samaria because He wanted the Samaritans to hear the gospel for these outcasts to have the opportunity to respond. And so that's where Philip goes. He's there. He's in Samaria because God's put him there. And here's the great lesson for us. Your location is important to God. It's you are where you are because God wants you there. Your location is no accident. Where you're living, where you're working, where you are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are there because God's placed you there. We've been talking, you know, a lot here at Trinity recently about our circles of influence. So the people that you're around, people in your neighborhood, people in your family, the people in your workplace, that's your circle of influence. We've been talking about our neighborhood network, you know, this new way of trying to connect us within the, those uh, circles of influence so that we can have an influence for the gospel there. A great example you heard this morning from Daniel and Kathleen about what God is doing in their church. This has been a process for them over these last number of years, learning that they are the church wherever they are and that where they are is the place God wants to use them to let others know about Him. 
That's the emphasis here. That's exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 8. God scatters the church, and where they are, like where Philip ends up, is exactly where God wants him to be because he wants others there to hear about him. And so God has you in proximity to people who need the gospel. God has you in relationship with people who need the gospel. God has you there for His sovereign purposes. And this this gives such meaning and purpose to our lives that we could never provide any other way. And so God does through us. And Philip got that. He understood that. He he faithfully proclaims the gospel when God puts him and plants him in Samaria. But when he goes there, there is some confrontation and opposition. So I want to take you on now to start in verse 9. This goes beyond now where Bruce read. So let me read the passage for us, verse 9. For now, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and that all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is highly, rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, let me stop for a minute before we continue. This is sorcery, right? This is this guy, Simon. It's a false power. It's an evil power that he is using to impress the people. Now, he had duped them. He told them he was the power of God. They believed this. he was doing this in the power of God, but this was not the power of God. What they saw in Philip was the power of God, and it was totally different. And that's what changes everything for them. You read on here, verse 12, but when When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. He and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. I mean, I I love this. Simon of all people knew that his power was a false power. It was it was magic, it was sorcery. So he, when he saw the real power of God at work, he knew it was the real deal. And he begins to follow. He himself, the passage tells us, believed and is baptized. But is this genuine faith in this guy? Is this, or is this just amazement? Is he just excited about what he's seen? Let's, let's read on to see what happens next. Verse 14, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Spirit had not come on them on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the obvious question here is, why is there this delay? And that's not the way it typically happened, right? People come to faith, they're baptized, and the Holy Spirit would come on them at that point. That's the way it had been happening, but not here. Well, remember, this is, we're still in a transition period, and now the gospel is going to a new place, a new group of people. And so God wants to do this in a very significant and special kind of way. And I think there's two real important reasons why there's this delay in the coming of the Holy Spirit on these new believers. It's not that their faith wasn't genuine yet. It's that Peter and John and the church in Jerusalem, the the apostles, needed to know that this was God's work, that it was real, that it was genuine. And so Peter and John show up representing the church and the apostles, and they see this. They see these people. They see their faith, and they see the Holy Spirit being given to them. And so they could go back to Jerusalem and saying, hey, I know you're not going to believe this, but Samaritans can become Christians too. Extraordinary. So it was for their benefit, but it was also for the benefit of these Samaritans, right? This was all new to them, new faith, new gospel message that they're hearing, and they've responded in faith. So they needed this affirmation from the apostles, from the Jerusalem church, that they were part of them, that they were accepted by them. And so that happens when Peter and John come, and the Spirit comes, and they realize that they are being brought into this family of God, the body of Christ. And this this is such a beautiful picture, because for hundreds of years, this people group had been rejected, and now they're being embraced by the family of God. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is and what the church should be. And so, right at the beginning here, already God is bridging an enormous racial, cultural gap through the church. 
We're not done with Simon, though. Look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given the laying on of apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's hard to know what's going on in Simon's mind. I think probably as, as a new believer, if his faith was genuine, he, he just, he's just going to his default pattern, right? For so many years, he had been in his sorcery and his false power, probably doing it for financial gain and personal gain, and so he just automatically begins to think, well, that's just the way this works. But it's not. Again, the distinction between God's power and the, the enemy's power, this false power, the sorcery, is, is dramatic. And so Peter responds to him in verse 20. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray that the Lord and, to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. I mean, Peter doesn't mess around here. He just jumps right on this. This this man, Simon, who had boasted that he was someone great, that's what the text told us earlier, who amazed the people with his power, is now laid low in his pride and his sin and his bitterness. Which leads to our last principle this morning. The gospel confronts our sin. The gospel confronts our sin. Yes, the gospel is the good news of God's grace offered to us through Jesus Christ. But if we take that grace and we try to turn it around for our own benefit, for our own use, for our own agenda, we end up captive to sin, just like Simon. It's not for our use. The grace of God comes, and when His grace comes, it exposes our sin, right? It exposes what's wrong with us so that we'll confess our sin and find forgiveness in Him, which is what Peter offered to Simon right here. Notice his response, verse 24, pray to the Lord for me that, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, was this authentic repentance? It's hard to know. The text doesn't really give us any more. It doesn't say what happened next. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but if he truly repented, then God forgave him. And this is what the gospel does. It challenges our natural desire for power and control. The sense that we have, we all have that we want, we want to be God. We want to, we want to give the, the directions. It's what Adam and Eve struggled with in the garden, and it's come all the way down to us and true of us today. Like Simon, we want the attention. We want to impress others with our abilities, with our experiences, with our knowledge, with our opinions. We always want people to see or think the best of us. But the gospel shakes out those selfish tendencies. It reminds us that we're humble sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Beth and I went with the rest of our family to out on their boat on Lake Lanier, and they were going to teach me how to wake surf. So I've done water skiing before, so I figured, oh, there can't be anything to this. You know, you just let, hold the rope, let the boat pull you up, and it's big board. It's bigger than water skis, so it's got to be easier. <laughs> it's not easier. So over and over, the boat pulled me up and I'd fall over, fall, fall over, fall over. I'm doing all, all kinds of um, ways to fall into the water. And so finally, I get up on the board and it's pulling me behind. The idea with wake surfing is that you, you pull up close behind the boat and the wave, the, the wake that the boat creates is what you kind of surf on. So eventually, you don't even need the rope anymore. You just throw it back into the boat. You're that close. Well, I got into the wave, throw, threw the rope over, thought it was going, doing great, but within a couple seconds, I washed out of the wave, and I sunk in the water. See, and this is such a picture of our sin. We, we think we can do it. We think we're fine on our own. You know, I can, I can handle this, and we fall, and we fall, and we fall. We sink in the water, and the point of grace is to remind us just like Peter had to remind Simon, you need the forgiveness of God. Grace is showing you your sin. You need God to come along with the boat and pick you up and pull you out of the water. That's His grace. And that's the picture we have in our passage this morning. This great, amazing grace of God. Yeah, the bad news is we're fallen and in sin, but the good news is God has done something about it. 
Jesus paid the price for our sin. He's offered to carry us. So in this passage, we've seen God's power displayed through the gospel. I hope you've seen that this morning. It's so powerful that the gospel can even spread in the midst of hardship. In fact, sometimes it's hardship in our lives that brings the gospel to the surface. It's so powerful that the gospel can reach and transform anyone, the outcast, the oppressed. The gospel brings people together. There's no one outside the reach of God's love. And then the third thing is that the, this power of God, the power of the gospel, confronts the sin in our lives, the very thing we need most. But it also forgives our sin, and God changes our hearts. This text that we have today, the last verse, verse 25, ends with telling us that Peter and John return to Jerusalem. But notice, on the way, they stop at all these villages in Samaria, and they share the gospel, and more people come to faith. I mean, just the, the, the growth of the church, the expansion of the gospel is so extraordinary. And exact, it's exactly what Jesus promised. He said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and now it's happening. We're watching it happen in, in chapter 8 of Acts. As we'll see next week, the gospel is going to go even further as we get to the last part of chapter 8. Here's the bottom line. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, then you have the greatest news that's ever been given on this planet. You have the greatest power at work in you because you've been given the Holy Spirit. And you have experienced the greatest grace there is through the forgiveness of your sin. So share that news, live in that power, and lean on that grace of God. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You this morning that You have shown us in Your life and in Your church, in this book of Acts, how the gospel works. And Lord, I thank You that we can know that even when we're struggling, even in difficulty and hardship in our lives, that that may be where our voice for the gospel is the loudest. And thank You, Lord Jesus, that we have been given this the Spirit, the Spirit of God to dwell in us, to empower us. It's a greater power than anything this world or this, the enemy has to throw against us. And Lord, thank You that Your grace is so great that even when we fall, even when we stray, when we sin, even when we act like Simon in this passage, we are offered the restorative power of forgiveness and grace. Thank You for that. And this morning... As we come to the table, Lord, let us see you, Lord Jesus, as you are, the lion who has conquered, the lamb who was slain, all for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.